There is an accusation that is sometimes leveled against people like us or churches like us who so highly value God's Word. That sometimes they say you, you value God's Word far too much that you idolize the Bible. I've heard people say this. We don't idolize the Bible. We love God's Word because we know that without God's Word, we wouldn't know who God is. Because God is so holy, because God is so other, because He is so much greater than us, the only way that we can know anything about Him is by Him revealing it to us, and He has revealed it to us in the pages of Scripture. And so when we read these words, what we are reading is the very revelation of God Himself to us. We are reading God's character revealed to us, His attributes revealed to us, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His holiness. All of it is revealed to us in Scripture. And so we love it. We love this, not because of the the pages and the leather. We love it because it is the very revelation of God to us. How important is God's written word? Well, look at what Jesus said in our text this morning. Hear these words. Look again at verse 18. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So I know I have an hour to preach this morning. But I'm going to give you everything we're going to say up front in one paragraph, okay? And you'll just keep hearing this repeated and repeated and repeated. God bless you for being so patient with someone like me. There aren't enough words to describe the untouchable, unchallengeable, absolute, unbreakable, unalterable perfection of God's Word. His clear final, sufficient, necessary, and glorious word. As revealed to us in the opening sentence of Genesis all the way to the closing sentence of the Revelation. All of it is inviolable. All of it stands above us as our primary authority. You, nor me, nor I, stand above God's word in any way bringing it to heel when we don't like what it says. No, the very opposite is true. Our lives are to be lived in submission to all that God reveals and all that God commands in the pages of His Word. What God says here is always completely and totally true. It defines and reveals truth. We could stop there. We could end there. That is a full stop statement. We're not going to, but that is a full stop statement. And this is what we're going to be repeating over and over and over again throughout our time together this morning. Now, the writers of Scripture quite clearly display the highest regard, even more, the highest love for God's totally authoritative word all throughout this word. And as we will see, God's word is extolled in the most wonderful and beautiful poetry on the planet. Now, you know, right? You know like I know. There is no end 
to the amount of poems that have been written about love. Many of our favorite songs are just that, poems about love set to music. If you're married this morning, many of the love letters and notes you wrote to your spouse in the early days of your relationship fond over your love for that significant other, right? And every so often, every so often, when cleaning up or moving boxes in the house or uh, shifting something from one place to another, my wife will find an old letter or an old note that I wrote while we were dating. And she'll read it. And then she will look at me and remind me about how sweet I was back then. (laughs) I even wrote her a song. And while I can't remember all the words to the song, she still brings it up to me. It was such lovely poetry. I do know that the words of the song, however, were over-the-top cheesy. I think I wrote a little bit, I wrote about how much, uh, loving her enough to eat sushi for her. That was one of the lines in the song. Now, I took a quick look online, and I found that I'm not the only one, and you guys, all of you in here who've written such cheesy poetry... You're not the only ones either who have written such genius, poetic masterpieces on love. Here's a few examples I found online. They're not genius, just so you know. But here's one. I found this online. It says this. This is, this is someone writing about their love for their significant other. Our love is like a bowling ball like a brand new Brunswick red zone. It rolls and rolls down the alley of desire and rolls and rolls and rolls. (laughs) Our love is like a bowling ball. Our scores will rise and rise. I shall never step beyond the foul line and I will rent your shoes. End. (laughs) Can you imagine having written that? Can you imagine having your spouse tuck that one away and find it 25 years later in a memento box? Kevin DeYoung, in his outstanding book, I recommend it to every one of you. It's called Taking God at His Word. It is a wonderful exposition of the value of God's Word. He captures a few more of what he labels strikingly bad poetry about love. And here's a few examples that he gives. Here's another one. Look, there's a lonely cow Hey, cow, if I were a cow, that would be me. If love is the ocean, I'm on the Titanic. Girl, I burned my hand on the frying pan of love. But still, it feels better than the bubble gum that holds us together, which you stepped on. End. And one more, just one more, and then we'll, you know. This one's called The Purse of Love. Okay? This one is poetic genius at its highest. Girl, you make me brush my teeth, comb my hair, use deodorant, call you, you're so swell. End. So these poetic endeavors, they're all rather forgettable, aren't they? except to the spouse who might like to reminisce about the early days of their inflamed affections for one another. But 
the single most memorable love poem ever written. Do you know where that's found? In Scripture. Amen. The single longest chapter of the single longest book in the Bible contains the single greatest poem on love ever written. And do you know what this love poem speaks of? Do you know who it speaks of? Do you know what it speaks of? The answer might surprise you. Again, Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Surely it is significant that this intricate, finely crafted, single-minded love poem, the longest in the Bible, is not about marriage or children or food or drink or mountains or sunsets or rivers or oceans, but about the Bible itself. The single longest love poem in Scripture is about the Bible itself. Psalm 119. Let's listen to some of the poetic mastery of David, King David in the psalm. Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24, read like this. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn, scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselor. And David keeps going and going and going. And if you pick it up again, 50 verses later, you will read this, starting in Psalm or verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointments they stand this day, for all things are his servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. King David understood the value of God's word, didn't he? King David understood the importance of God's revelation to us in Scripture, didn't he? And on top of that, he absolutely loved it. Now, let's contrast that with the number of people throughout church history and even up to our own day, even so-called church leaders and pastors and the like who disagree with David and instead of loving God's word, it labor to disconnect us from God, God's word. Listen to me. This is the single greatest provocation to my own soul. Nothing brings me to a boil more quickly than those who claim to be Christian leaders but make ridiculous statements and simply outright wrong claims about the value, the authority, and the permanence of God's Word in its entirety, both the Old and New Testament. And this should be one of your greatest provocations as well because 
to start trying to disconnect and devalue and modify God's word is an affront to the character of the God who reveals himself in it. And why is this a common issue? Why are we continually going through this over and over and over in every single generation? Why must we continue to resolutely guard against those who would seek to devalue Scripture? It's because humanity, and that includes you and that includes me, humanity overall absolutely hates the idea of submitting to an authority outside of itself. And this is an all-too-human impulse that has led and still leads to attempt after attempt, even within the visible church, to disconnect us from, to devalue, or to modify and shape God's word to fit our fancies, rather than us submitting to it. However, God's word stands over you. God's word stands over me. God's word stands over everyone. And God's word makes clear demands of us. And God's word reveals his character to us. And when I say God's word, I mean both the Old and the New Testaments. These are our absolute authority. But this is for many and has been throughout history an unacceptable conclusion. Way back in the early church, for example... A wealthy shipowner named Marcion of Sinope. He was a teacher in Rome about 137 to 154 AD. Rose to prominence. Marcion taught that the Old and the New Testaments were irreconcilable and totally opposed to one another. The God revealed in the Old Testament, according to Marcion, was a cruel and unloving being. And that Judaism itself, in following this terrible, villainous, and monstrous God revealed therein, showed itself to be evil, despicable, and diabolical as a religion. But Marcion also taught that the New Testament, in contrast, reveals to us the supreme God, the Father in heaven, disclosed to us in the person of Jesus Christ as a God of love. This is what Marcion taught. And so Marcion, with this understanding of the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, set himself to the production of a version of the Scriptures that, that agreed with his understanding. And so he eliminated everything that had a Jewish flair. Old Testament, throw it out. The only thing that he kept was the Gospel of Luke and a few letters of Paul. And even the letters of Paul, according to Marcion, Paul was the only one who truly understood Jesus. Even these letters of Paul had to be uh, called of any favorable references to the Jews and to the Old Testament. Marcion was condemned as a heretic by the early church. Just so we know, just so we're clear, the early church understood this idea as a heretical idea because the early church highly valued the Old Testament and never considered that it was anything other than the very Word of God. In fact, for the first few decades of the early church's existence, the Old Testament was the only Bible it had. However... 
We still feel the ripples of this Marcionite heresy even up into our own time. Every time you hear somebody say that there is some sort of difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, that is an outright error. Every time we hear someone say, well, that's just the Old Testament, uh, that is an outright error. Throughout the Old Testament, let me tell you how God is revealed. He is revealed as holy, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, faithful, and loving. And in the New Testament, every single one of these attributes is revealed and ratcheted up to an even higher degree. The New Testament reveals that the God of the Old Testament is the same God and He is even more gracious and more merciful and more holy and more just than we could have ever imagined. And up into the Middle Ages and beyond, we watched both the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches to varying degrees minimize the authority of God's word as well. The more egregious Roman Catholic tendency was put forth in what is called papal bulls. Papal bulls were the Pope giving his authoritative stamp upon something and some of these papal bulls or declarations declared that the Pope's words and the church's traditions and the church's magisterium carried more weight than the scripture itself in the life of the believer. That church tradition and papal declaration can supersede the text of scripture. That is an outright error. And the Orthodox Church tried to navigate the, the, between the Protestants who cried out, Scripture alone! And the Catholics who said, no, 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 church tradition, Pope and Scripture. And so they came up with this kind of middle ground where they put the two on equal footing. Tradition of the church and the Word of God carry equal authority. This is an outright error as well. Both of these are tremendously damaging errors because all things, all church practice, all church tradition, all church leadership, all anything that has to do with the church is subject to the inviolable authority of God's written word. The Protestants and the Reformers, they were right. Scripture alone is our authority. And woe to those systems, and woe to those groups, and woe to those peoples, and woe to those so-called churches that attempt to place anything above or even beside God's revealed will in Scripture. And even up into our own day, even up into our own day. Now listen, saints, we have to be on guard for this. This is one of the pillars that the outside world will try to chip away at. And once they can hit this pillar, once they can knock this pillar down, say goodbye to the faithfulness of any movement or church that buys into it. Even up into our own day, these sorts of ideas are espoused by many would-be claimants to church leadership. One former pastor, for example, a man named Rob Bell, who at one time was considered the heir apparent to Billy Graham but who has since become an absolute apostate, was challenged by Oprah on the church's traditional position on marriage as derived and held to because Scripture 
plainly teaches that marriage is the lifelong monogamous union between one man and one woman. And when challenged, this Rob Bell, who claims to be a Christian leader, replied with this word, this, this is what he said, and I quote, I think culture is already there in disagreement. This is, so, end quote meaning in disagreement with the historical definition of marriage, all right? When he says there, he means in disagreement with the historical definition of marriage. So let's do it again. Quote, I think the culture is already there, and the church will be more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense, end quote. That is a preposterous statement. The idea being that God's word is not relevant to us today as Steve Lawson, one of our, both mine and Pastor Rob's professors in school, is so fond of saying, and he is right, Scripture is more relevant to our lives than tomorrow's newspaper. Okay? Don't buy in to these types of statements. And even, that's, that's Rob Bell is, many consider him an apostate, but there is another man who caused a stir a few years ago, pastor of a quite popular church, pastors a church in the thousands, who also made a preposterous statement. His name is Andy Stanley. He said quite stunningly that the first century leaders unhitched, here, end quote, this is a quote from Andy Stanley, unhitched the church from the worldview, value systems, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Unclosed quote. Again, an absurd and preposterous statement. The only Christian leader who did such a thing in the early church was Marcion, and he was condemned as a heretic by that early church. This is an absurd and just plain wrong view of Scripture. And the foolishness of those instructors who sit as judge over what is relevant, over what is useful, and over what is hitched cannot be overstated. Again, no one sits over the text of Scripture. No one sits over it in judgment. Scripture is the absolute authority. And we submit ourselves to it, to all that it teaches. In Scripture, God has laid down His absolute and binding Word, and Jesus made it unmistakably clear that Scripture, all of Scripture, is authoritative. Jesus, who is our great example, never taught, never practiced, never said anything that was opposed to or contrary to Scripture. But instead, he upheld it in every single way. So again, let's compare the views of uh, Marcion and the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox and Rob Bell and Andy Stanley and the host of so-called Christian leaders who parrot those views, who have bought into these lies and say things like, well, that's the Old Testament. It doesn't really apply to us today. Compare such degradations of Scripture to the cries of the great Protestant reformers who roared out, Scripture alone is our authority. 
Compare those erroneous views, uh, these gravely deficient and outright idolatrous views to a few more of King David's wonderfully poetic statements in Psalm 119 about Scripture. Listen, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Or verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or verse 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Or 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. And 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Can you see a difference between King David and a number of so-called leaders throughout the history of the church when it comes to the wonders of God's word? And always remember this. Where did Jesus turn when he was engaged with a, in a battle with Satan in the wilderness? Where did he turn? He turned to the book of Deuteronomy. And if the book of Deuteronomy is good enough for Christ in his battles against the enemy, it's good enough for you and I. In fact, Christ declared the authority of the Old Testament over and over and over again. It was for him, it was to him, the very word of God. And he quoted the Old Testament and referred to the Old Testament authoritatively over and over again as the final witness that both clinched and closed every case, every time. And along with David and along with Deuteronomy, I want you to hear the words of Jesus himself, who in the Sermon on the Mount that we are looking at today, very clearly stated, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, again, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Why did Jesus need to say this? Well, the Pharisees had made life in his, for those in Israel very difficult. At this point, the people weren't simply laboring to understand and follow the law of God as written in Scripture. And they were also pressured to follow and heed the extra sets of rules that had been laid down for them by the religious leaders. For every single command in Scripture, the Jewish rabbis had debated it ad nauseum with the with the intention of understanding it more deeply, and then they would set a number of rules around that law a number of fences around that command, which over time became rules as authoritative as the laws themselves. And these laws upon laws and these rules upon rules proved to be a crushing burden on the common folk in the day. And the Pharisees and the scribes especially, they used all of these extra biblical laws to elevate themselves both in their own eyes and in the eyes of those around them. They created an impossible game with impossible rules and they included everyone in the game and continually penalized everyone for breaking their numerous convoluted rules. And so here Jesus arrives on the scene. 
And he's baptizing people. And he's healing people. And he's driving out demons. He's actually focused on helping people. And so the people were in a state of eager anticipation. Who is this man? Here is a man unlike the religious leaders they were so accustomed to. Here is a man unlike those religious leaders who bind everyone with their rules without even so much as lifting a finger to help anyone. But instead, here is a man who is eagerly attentive to us and our needs. Here's a man who doesn't look down on us like we are simply filthy, rotten, unworthy sinners like the Pharisees do. He knew we were sinners, but he didn't treat us like the Pharisees did. And Jesus here, as he speaks to this eagerly attentive crowd, begins and says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now the opening phrase here, do not think, is, is stronger than our English translations suggest. We could actually translate it or state it like this. Do not even entertain the thought that I have come to abolish the law. Or do not even let this type of thinking cross your mind that I have come to abolish the law. Jesus is giving a prohibition to the crowds who are listening to him here. Do not for one second even consider the idea that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. See, this notion that Jesus had come to abolish the law and the prophets, law and prophets here used together in this way refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus took that off the table. Why? Because he did not come to abolish. Abolish here means annul or tear down or demolish or declare invalid or inapplicable. Jesus is saying, I did not come to make any of this inapplicable or to annul it or to tear it down. He did not come to abolish this law. And then the question is why? Why did he not come to abolish the law? Here's the answer. Because it's impossible to do so. It is impossible that God's holy word actually be abolished. God's word cannot be set aside because it is absolute. It is unchangeable. It cannot be modified. However, however, it can be fulfilled. God's law can be fulfilled. And this is what Jesus came to accomplish, the fulfillment of the law. The idea of fulfillment here is the satisfying or the carrying out of the law in the sense of rendering a full and perfect obedience to it. And if you're a believer here, we all benefit from this full and perfect obedience of Christ because when you come to Jesus in faith, it is his perfect full obedience that is applied to your account, that is credited to your account. So when God looks at you, he sees the perfect full obedience of Jesus Christ in you. Jesus is the one that the law and the prophets pointed to. He is the one who fully satisfies all the demands, all the promises, and all the prophetic words of the Old Testament. So you see, Scripture is authoritative and inviolable. Now let's just hear an example. Let's look at the inviolable nature of the Old Testament. Look at Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. In that text, we are told this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law. Underline that word, under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see that? Jesus did not come to supersede the law. He was born under the law as the one who came to fulfill it. God in Christ revealed the unchangeable and the authoritative nature of his word, so much so that in Christ, Christ himself was placed under that law during his incarnation, under that law during his life on earth, to the point that on the cross, Jesus even endured in his own body all of the penalties that are prescribed or described by that law for the sins of humanity. Ultimately, death. So why did Jesus come born under the law? To save those who truly believe in him from the law and power of sin and death. Romans 8 verse 3 declares this, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see that? Our flesh is too weak to perfectly fulfill the law of God. And so God, in sending his son Jesus in the flesh, fulfilled... The righteous requirements of the law on your behalf if you believe in him. And so in him, all of us are gifted this perfect obedience to the law. Isn't that wonderful? And why did it have to be this way? Because God's word cannot be changed. Because God is perfectly consistent from beginning to end. Because God's word reveals his holy character and his holy character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus said so much in verse 18. Once again, until, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now listen, the opening statement here, for truly I say to you, indicate that what Christ is about to say next is a statement heavy and saturated with importance. This is a statement without qualification. It is a full stop declaration. And what is this extremely important declaration? Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth, the entirety of creation, the physical planet, along with the abode of God and his angels, all of these will pass out of existence or use before the law of God does. And Luke makes this statement in an even stronger way, saying this in Luke 16, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See that? Until heaven and earth pass away. Or it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Heaven and earth are symbols of permanence. Until that happens, not an iota, which is one of the smallest and simplest of the Greek letters. Not even a dot, which is the smallest and simplest part of a letter, will pass away until all is accomplished. There is not one single aspect of the law 
or the prophets that is unimportant. Every single letter down to the smallest strokes of the pen are there by the perfect will and design of God. Therefore, it is impossible that even one single dot will pass from it. It is impossible that even the smallest letter will pass away, will fall out of use or existence. And this is meant to be a wonderful comfort to you that God's word is secure. The stability of his law is sure that it would be easier for heaven and earth to completely pass out of existence than for God's law to lose its stability and its authority right down to the smallest pen stroke until all is accomplished. And this concept of the permanence of God's word and the permanence of his decree finds much airtime in scripture. Here's a couple of examples to make the point. We'll go back to Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Or the prophet Isaiah in 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen and amen. Not one iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you see that? Until everything that the Old Testament promised, everything that the Old Testament points to comes to pass, right down to the slightest of details. The idea here is that everything without exception, every command, every prophecy, every type, every symbol will be accomplished and fulfilled. Many have been in the incarnation of Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ, in the life of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, in the ascension of Christ, and in the arrival of the Holy Spirit, while still others wait to be fulfilled upon Christ's return in glory. However, we know that while some of them have not been accomplished yet because we await Christ's return, every single detail will be accomplished because God's word is without error from beginning to end. Now here's the tricky part. This does not mean that every single aspect of the law and prophets remain in force as it once did for the Jews. For example, ceremonial laws. You know the ceremonial laws. Laws that govern the sacrificial system. Laws that govern the uh, going to the temple and those types of things. Like those described, for example, in the first seven verses of Leviticus. These are not binding for post-ascension Christ believers and followers. Why? Because the goal of these sacrifices was to both continually remind the people of their sins and to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah who would offer a single, completely effective sacrifice to deal with the sin of all who would come to him in faith. This is what Hebrews 12 or 10 verse 12 tells us. So in this sense, Jesus did away with the sacrificial system in order to establish the system of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he did so by being himself the sacrifices that made all other sacrifices unnecessary. Which leads the writer of the Hebrews to joyfully declare in chapter 10 verse 14 that by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is no diminishment of God's word. It is no elimination of God's word. It is no questioning of the authority of God's word. It is a recognition of the heights of scriptural truth, a recognition of the consistency of God's word, a recognition of how God has organized things in salvation history. And we note and praise God for his moving of all things toward the incarnation of Christ. 
and his giving of pointers and his giving of types and his giving of symbols that we might know and recognize this Savior when he arrived. However, as we will see throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there are still a number of laws that are still in full force. And Jesus will reveal the true intentions of a number of these laws as we move forward throughout this uh, Sermon on the Mount. Laws, for example, like murder and adultery that the Pharisees had completely misunderstood. These aren't laws that win you salvation. These aren't laws that earn you salvation because we can never earn salvation or merit based on our good works. But instead, these are the fruits of true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this truth here that Christ has come to fulfill the law and that nothing will pass from the law until all has been accomplished in and by him has, in the hands of wicked men, led to a couple of sinful responses. The first being antinomianism. That's a big word, antinomianism. Or the idea that we don't need to follow the law because Christ has accomplished it and fulfilled it on our behalf. And the second is legalism. Because not an iota or a dot of the law passes away, the legalists would say that we are bound to follow all of it if we are to be acceptable and to the Lord and saved. Both of these misunderstand the words of Christ here. And so Jesus will address them both in these next two verses. First, he looks to the antinomian, the one who claims that the law is not something that has any bearing on us anymore, and he says this in verse 19. Therefore... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here the antinomian is the one who assumes that the believer is free from the law, that the law has no bearing on our lives whatsoever. This is the one who says that we don't need to actually strive and fight to obey the commands of God because God's grace in Christ has made it unnecessary. These types stand corrected here when Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Do you see that? Relax here means to annul or to loosen or to set aside or to unbind from an obligation. It is unacceptable to loosen any of the commandments, even the least of them. You see Jesus there? Even the least of them. And least here is a superlative, meaning the most insignificant or trivial of the laws. And it's interesting, the rabbis used to actually argue and debate. Which, which, are, the, which are the commands in the Bible is the least? And after much argumentation and much debating over which of the 613 laws in the Old Testament that they had identified was the least or the most insignificant, they concluded that it was Deuteronomy 22, verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy 22, verses 6 and 7, read like this. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with the young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the eggs on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you that you may live long. So Jesus in his superlative uh, degree here says that not even that is is, is out of the question now. 
right? You don't relax any of them. Now, Jesus will move on, and he makes this clear to the Pharisees in one of his woes against them recorded in Matthew 23, 23. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see that? Focus on the weighty. Do not relax the least. Strive and struggle and be as meticulous as possible in obeying the law of God. Not because it saves you, not because it wins God's affection, but because this is the fruit of true salvation that we strive to obey God and be as much like Christ as possible. Now look, what is it that we are not to relax? It's uh, these commandments. You see that? These commandments. Or, to be clear, the true and accurate description of these commandments as Jesus describes them. Not the pharisaical interpretations. If you want to know the full meaning and intention of what the Old Testament teaches and what it means to do them and teach them, read the New Testament and all Christ says about the Old Testament. You cannot truly grasp the Old Testament without knowing Christ. This is a mistake that the Pharisees made, and Jesus tried to correct them a number of times. For example, in John 5, when he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me, about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, left to ourselves, we all want to find a way to relax God's word to modify its strict and exacting demands on our lives. And then we go out and labor to instruct or convince others as well because that somehow makes us feel justified in continuing down our own path of obedience. You ever done this? I've been called out on it a few times. When you really want something, you go around and you start talking to people and, and you convince them that what it is that you want is legitimate and then they say to you, oh yeah, you should do that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, all right. And the more people that you can get to do that, the more you feel justified in going and doing that thing. We do that with sin as well. Well, I don't really, I, I do this thing, but it's because of A, B, C, and D. And then if someone says to you, well, oh yeah, that makes sense. Then you're like, all right, I can keep doing it. What is this about us? Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to um, modify and relax God's word? We can be so sneaky and so deceptive with ourselves at times, can't we? And then what is worse is that we go to other people and we try to convince them of it as well. Woe, woe to those who do that. I've done it too and I, I, you know, I repent of that. It is not permissible to relax any of God's words as described and explained to us by Christ. And this is because his law is a reflection of his own perfect character. So what does it say about us? When we attempt to relax, annul, or modify God's word, here's what it means. 
it means that we despise his character. It means that we despise his character. That ought to terrify us. And for this reason, Deuteronomy, for example, over and over and over again, calls on the recipients, those who hear the wonderful and perfect law of God, to be careful. Be careful to hear and do everything in this law. Read it. You'll see it over and over and over again. Take a marker to highlight every time you come across that phrase. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. To do everything that God's word commands because to do any other is to loathe the character of God himself. Instead, do them and teach them. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and his explanations of the Old Testament, some of which we will look at over the next week. So for the antinomian who thinks that the grace of God means that the law of God can be relaxed, you are wrong. It is a grievous and sinful response that must be repented of. Now, on the other side of the coin, in closing, we're almost, we're almost done here, on the other side of the coin is the legalist. This is the one who assumes that their good deeds and their meticulous obedience to the law wins them some sort of favor and affection from God. To this group, Jesus said in verse 20, look at it, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> unless it exceeds, you see that? Unless it exceeds. Exceeds here means is more abundant, is more plentiful, but not in the quantitative sense. This is in the qualitative sense. Let me explain that. Jesus isn't instituting a scorecard system as in, okay, if the Pharisees follow 90% of the law and I follow 91% of the law, then we're good, right? Because my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. No. Jesus is not instituting some sort of scorecard that uh, we must beat, beat the Pharisees or we won't enter the kingdom. No, this is not about quantity. It's about quality. Unless our righteousness is of a different quality than the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom. And this because even the best of human righteousness falls woefully short. This is the corrective to the Pharisees who thought that they had already arrived, that they were holy, that they were acceptable to God because they thought they were better followers of the law than everyone else. The Apostle Paul made it crystal clear, didn't he? He had, in Philippians 3, just as much, if not more, to boast about than most of your Pharisees, if not all of your Pharisees. And yet, Paul declared that boasting in this type of human righteousness, thinking that it wins you some affection before God, was nothing more than, in Philippians 3 verse 8, rubbish or refuse. It's worth nothing more than to be tossed out if you think that it's going to win you the affection and favor of God. The righteousness of the Pharisees was of an external quality. The righteousness of the believer in Christ is of a different quality, that of a heart that is changed by grace, a life characterized by the Holy Spirit who lives in us and leads to an obedience that springs internally from, in, from, from inside to outside. And this type of obedience goes over and above the mere formalism and, and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. 
And this righteousness, what I'm talking about right here, is going to be illuminated for us over the next two chapters of this sermon. As Jesus will cover, explain, and command in subjects like anger and murder and adultery, lust, divorce, retaliation, and forgiveness. All of which, all of which are utterly impossible to follow and obey in our own strength apart from the Holy Spirit of God. So the righteousness that we require is credited, credited to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus came to earth and he lived the perfect life. He lived the life that fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. And the only way that anyone can attain this righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is by trusting in Christ by believing in Christ, by placing your faith in Christ, by turning from your sin and bowing your knee to Him as King, Lord, and Savior. When we trust Him, when we believe in Him, His righteous, perfect, law-fulfilling life is applied to our account. And at that point, we are considered completely righteous in the sight of God who when he looks at us, now sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's this qualitative change from wicked to righteous that leads to a change in our lives in reference to our deeds. As now we live out of our new righteous nature and we are informed by and instructed by and taught by and challenged by and encouraged by and exhorted by God's completely authoritative, inviolable, unchangeable, unchallengeable word. A word that stands above us. A word to which we must all submit. A word around which we base the entirety of our lives. So when in doubt, look to God's word. Study it. Read it. Grow in your knowledge of it. Let it be the subject of your great love poems because it reveals to us the great joy and the great delight of our souls. It reveals to us our great and gracious Savior, our Lord, our resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. Father, we give you praise and honor for the revelation of your character, of your attributes, and of your will to us in your word. And Lord, we are going to be challenged both internally from our own flesh and externally from those who would claim to be Christian leaders to uh, submit the, your word to something else, whether it be our own cultural understandings, whether it be our own personal passions and desires and lusts, whether it be the, the teachings of churches and organizations and peoples that, that get it wrong. Father, I pray that you would help us to always keep this principle firmly fixed in our mind that your word is the authority and we must submit to it. Oh Lord, we love your word. We love your law. It is the meditation of our hearts day and night. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and I pray that your Holy Spirit would never, ever, ever let us sacrifice that or forget it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.